The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. And on this episode, I'm going to be playing an interview that I recorded a while back with singer, songwriter, recording artist, and actress Amanda McBroom. We were talking about her album, Voices, and the album has songs that she wrote, as well as a few covers from people like Tom Paxton and some others. There's a duet on this album of Amanda McBroom with Vince Gill on the song The Rose, which a lot of you know is a song that was made popular by Bette Midler. She had a coffee, I had a coffee, and this is what we recorded. Enjoy. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. I've had my second cup of coffee, and I'm ready for action. <laughs> well, that's a good sign. The woman we're speaking with, Amanda McBroom, is a singer, songwriter, an actress. She has her latest album out. That album is Voices, and it's a great pleasure to talk to her. Thanks for joining us. I am delighted to be with you today. Thank you very much. Oh, it's our honor. Mm. Well, that's high cotton. <laughs> <laughs> Has the inspiration for you to write songs changed through the years? Well, you know, actually, I didn't start out as a songwriter anyway. I started out as an actress, and singing was just something I've done all my life, and I started songwriting as a hobby. And when I, you know, when the rose first happened and all of a sudden people started looking at me as a songwriter rather than an actress, I was running away from it. I just kept saying, no, 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 I'm an actress. I am not a songwriter. And my beloved husband finally said to me one day, honey, what's paying the mortgage? Don't you think you ought to take responsibility for this gift that you seem to have? So I finally accepted, I put on the songwriter sweater, I guess you'd say. And I would say at first it was, kind of haphazard. And then I thought, well, maybe I should be writing songs for other people, you know, as, as the very successful songwriters like Diane Warren do. And then it always wound up that the songs that people resonated most with were the songs I wrote for myself. So I would say that I finally come full circle and decided I'm just writing songs for myself. And if other people like them, yay! Tell us a little bit about where you're from and what kind of environment it was growing up. I was born in Burbank, right down the street from Warner Brothers Studio, because my daddy was in the movies, and my mother was a drama teacher. So I spent my formative years listening to my father recite Shakespeare, and my mother teach me how to pronounce words. And we would occasionally, my dad would play the piano late at night, and I would sit down on the piano bench and listen to him play old standards and sing. So music and theater have always been a part of my life. And then when I was about mm, 13, 14 maybe, I moved to Texas. And I lived with my aunt in Texas all through high school and college, which, which was a huge change from Warner Brothers Studios. But it gave me a whole other perspective on music and on you know, reality. Hollywood is only one reality. And Texas was a whole other reality. And it kind of colored also the way I, I looked at music and theater. At the time, Texas had one of the best the University of Texas, which is where I went to college, had one of the best theater departments in the country. And so I was blessed to have as much of a theatrical education as I wanted. I never thought that music would be anything except something that I would 
well, I would folk sing, you know, I had a little guitar and I would folk sing, but I never thought that music would be a big major part of my life. It was acting. I was going to be an actress from the time I was like four. So would you say these two things, you just mentioned the folk singing and of course uh-huh. the music of theater, would you say that that's kind of where Amanda McBroom is, where yep. it meets? Absolutely. I would say that the the cross-section of the dramatic monologue and a really nice folk song. I re- I was thinking about it the other day. Somebody was asking me to describe what I am, and I said, you know, I'm I'm a musical storyteller. I'm a balladeer. I don't write a lot of things you can dance to, but I write stories you can listen to. I have an album of yours, Chanson. <gasps> oh, you do? Yeah, I do. I know we're talking about voices, but I was hoping we could jump around a little. Sure, absolutely. Okay. I like that album a lot, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that side of you as well. Ah, well, Chanson was a CD I've dreamed about making for so many years. It's based on the music of the fabulous Belgian singer-songwriter Jacques Brel, who was the huge star in France and Belgium and Europe in the, I'd say, the 50s and 60s. He was, he was an enormous star. And there was a musical that was created called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, which was a review of his musical material that opened in New York. And I never knew about it. I was in high school when it first hit New York. But I was in college when it came on a national tour to San Francisco, where I was, and I fell so in love with his music because it was smart and sexy and dangerous and political and romantic, and it was so French, and I'd never heard music like that in my life. And the four people who were performing it on the stage in San Francisco when I saw it, they set my hair on fire. And the leading man set my hair on fire so much that I eventually married him. But I wound up being in the show and have been singing the music of Jacques Brel since 1971, I guess, my 72. And it also formulated the way I write because he's, his songs are very personal and very, they're not, they're not just, you know, easy peasy and let's sing a chorus. They're very complicated and very powerful. And he also, watching him perform on YouTube and videos and stuff, sort of guided the way I perform when I'm on stage because he stands very still. He doesn't move his arms around a lot. As my husband says, he just stands still and tells the truth. And that's what I'm hoping when, when I perform my music. I just try to do that, just stand still and tell the truth. So I was hoping you could tell the listeners, in addition to Jacques Brel, who are the artists that you most admire? Oh, well, that cuts quite, quite a swath. You, of course, Joni Mitchell, of course, Bonnie Raitt, Julie Andrews. I wanted to be Julie Andrews when I was little. Don Henley, the Eagles, Warren Zevon, Paul Simon, uh, Bruce Springsteen, people who, people who really have a way with language, choose language. I love words and i love intelligent words and they're such smart writers i I love them a lot so those would those would be my biggest influences and a little jimmy buffett because you got to have a little jimmy buffett now it's interesting you just mentioned jimmy buffett where does that come from i mean (laughs) yeah tell us where did you where did jimmy buffett has a sense of humor 
He's, he tells really great stories. Listen to Margaritaville. If you really sit down and listen to Margaritaville, it's an impeccably crafted song. It tells a funny story. It has an emotional twist at the end. The rhymes are perfect. There's not a wasted word. And you laugh. And you sing along. And that's huge. It makes everybody feel really good, want to get up and dance, have, you know, pour a glass of something. I love a sense of humor in a song. And he's, he's one of the best with funny songs. Him and John Prine. <laughs> I agree with you, but I, gosh, I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I was going to go dark and French on you. No. <laughs> We're joined by singer, songwriter, and recording artist Amanda McBroom. This new album of yours, Voices, mm -hmm. tell yeah. us, what does the title mean? Well, it started out, there um, There was a song that I wrote, well, what, okay, I was cleaning out my music studio one day, it, it was just getting too jumbled up with old things, and I decided I'm going to go all through all my cassettes, I still have cassettes, I still have eight tracks, and have them downloaded into my computer because they were beginning to dissolve, and as I was going through all these old cassettes, I kept finding these songs that I had written mostly long ago, and I kept saying, well, that's a good song, well, that's a good, hey, that's a good, and I just realized I had like a CD full of good songs, and one of the songs was a lovely song that I wrote with a man named Gordon Hunt called The Voices That Come Through the Wall. Gordon Hunt is the father of the actress, Helen Hunt, and was a wonderful director out here in California, but all he really wanted to be was a songwriter. And the two of us wrote a couple of really lovely songs together. And I heard that one and I said, oh, and so that became like the linchpin. And then I started, you know, picking other songs that would fit in with it. And as I got working more and more on it, I realized all of these songs are from, are like different characters. And so I thought these are the voices of the different characters. And I just figured that voices seemed like a really nice way to resonate. You know, I'm, I picked all, I wrote these songs for these people. So there's all these people and it's, it's their, each song is one of their voices. Do you prefer to write solo or do you prefer to have a collaborator? I love both. I've written a lot of things solo. My favorite collaborator on the planet is a woman, a brilliant singer-songwriter named Michelle Browerman. And she and I have been writing songs together since 1974 when we were three. And I, she's my favorite person because I will, I'll get a story in my mind. I'll read something in a newspaper. I'll have a lyric that just leaps to my consciousness and I'll write it down and I'll either mail it to her or read it to her over the phone. And in 20 minutes, she'll come back and say, what do you think of this? And frequently in 20 minutes, it's finished because she, we read each other's mind really well. You know, we're very, Sisters in Collaboration, she also was raised she, in theater, musical theater. So and the two of us, have. if anybody has a four-year-old child or grandchild, they've heard our songs in their home because she and I have written all the music for 14 of the Land Before Time videos, which is all about singing baby dinosaurs. I, was, I did finished a concert two days ago, and a lady walked up to me and said, my children still sing big, 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 big water. And I said, oh, they were four, right? <laughs> so she's my favorite because it's so easy. But I do indeed write with other people. And, you know, occasionally I'll sit down with my guitar or my piano and write something for me. Just, just, just me. As you mentioned, Michelle Browerman and 
some very iconic people you've written with. Randy Goodrum, for example, on this album. Yes, yes. Tell us about the song, I'm Here for Life. Ah, well, that would that one, I was going back to Nashville, because everybody says, you have to go to Nashville, you have to write in Nashville. And I had some dear friends who lived in Nashville at the time, and so I went back, and of course, the minute you land on the ground in Nashville, it's as if songwriting is in the water, in the food, in the air, everybody is a songwriter. And I all of a sudden this lyric came to me and I like to write love songs for my to my husband. And this one just screamed into my head and I wrote the lyric down and I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And a friend of mine said, you need to write this with Randy Goodrum. So he introduced me to Randy and Randy and I sat down and in about, you know, two hours, Randy had written the melody. We're talking with Amanda McBroom, the songwriter of The Rose. One of the other songs on the album is The Rose, a song that's been around a while. But yes. <laughs> and known by so many people. What made you decide to do this song on this album? My beloved producer, the person who's been, he's a brilliant producer from Nashville named Fred Mullen. And I had worked with him on a prior CD, and he's produced everybody from Jimmy Webb to Vince Gill to Johnny Mathis. He's a, you know, kind of a polymath as far as uh, producing goes. And when we decided we wanted to do this album together, the album, see, that dates me, of this CD together. And then he said, you know, you have to recut the rose. And I said, really? And he said, you haven't recorded it in 20 years, but you need to do it as a duet. And you need to do it with somebody that you have always dreamed about singing with. So think about who you've always dreamed about singing the song with. And we'll see if we can get him. Do you want to sing with Taylor Swift? Do you want to sing with Bette? Who do you want to sing with? And the first person that came to my mind was Vince Gill. Because I think he has one of the most beautiful voices on the planet. And he said, he's a friend of mine. I'll ask him. All he can say is no. And he didn't say no. Uh-huh. So when he decided to do it and you first met him, when you first met Vince Gill, was singing this duet the, the first time you had met face-to-face? -face? We've never met. Never met. That's the, what, that's the one thing that breaks my heart. He was on the road doing a series of concerts. We talked on the phone a lot and we FaceTimed, but I recorded my part and then he came back to Nashville after I had gone home to California and he recorded his part. But because we had spoken together and because he is such a genius, it just blended so beautifully. So he heard my track, he heard my voice, and he figured out what he wanted to do and where he wanted to do it. And the thing that really astounded me is that he can sing, well, he can sing in any key. He could sing in my key. I, we didn't have to change it, drop it, make it lower because of his He just has this angelic voice that can go so high or so low, and he just said, oh, I can do this in this key, no problem. So I have a video on FaceTime of him singing along with my voice, which is really thrilling. And I hope someday I get a chance to meet him. He's you know, one of the busiest men in show business, so who knows if I'll ever see him. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he, he is quite a, uh, gosh, it seems like there are so many albums he's involved with, but he does seem like someone who is everywhere at once. He is. He, and he is the nicest person on the planet, gracious and generous to a fault, kind, 
everybody, I've never heard a bad word about him from anybody. And in the music business, people are frequently unkind to each other. Everybody loves Vince Gill. And he's one of the best guitarists on the planet. And he's one of the best singers. We're joined by Amanda McBroom. There have been a lot of artists who have recorded your song. Uh, yeah. Your songs. I mean, not just Bette Midler, but also Barry Manilow, Harry Belafonte. Gosh, we could just go on and on. Barbara Cook. Kurt Cobain. <laughs> Kurt really? Cobain. Yes. Kurt Cobain recorded The Rose. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Isn't that wild? Indeed. Who would you say has done the best interpretation of a song that you wrote? Oh, woo, put me under the bus here. I would say either Judy Collins, who's done some beautiful things, or Barbara Cook. Barbara Cook does a version of a song I wrote about my father called Errol Flynn that's just ridiculous, that, that, that's, that's a, a heart stopper. I actually was going to ask you about that song. Tell us about that. Errol Flynn is a song. I, this is the other song that I wrote with my friend Gordon, uh, the one with whom I wrote Voices That Come Through the Wall. I was going, going to dinner with him. My husband and I were at dinner with him and his beloved, and there was this big poster on the halls. We were walking down the hall, and I said, oh, look, that's a movie my father was in. I believe it was called They Died With Their Boots On, or Santa Fe Trail. It was called Santa Fe Trail. And he said, your father, which one is that? And I pointed to the name, and there was a picture of him and his name. And he said, oh, my Lord, I know who that is. And then we went to dinner, and about two days later in the mail came a letter from Gordon. And he said, I've never done this in my life. But I, and I hope you don't mind. And he wrote a poem about my father in the movies. My dad's best friend was Errol Flynn. And my dad was sort of a second banana to Errol Flynn in many of his films in the 40s. And he'd written this song about my dad being a friend of Errol Flynn's. And I, I looked at the, the, the poem and I said, I can turn this into a song. And I had been wanting to write a song about my father forever. So I just sat down at the piano and turned it into Errol Flynn and thinking that it would be so personal that nobody would ever identify with it but me. And I find that it's one of the songs that everybody seems to identify with because everybody, no, not everybody, but a lot of people really love their father and, you know, realize that they're, almost all fathers have unfulfilled dreams. And the song is about my dad's unfulfilled dreams. And so it's become one of the most popular of my songs and one that a lot a lot of people do and i'm thrilled because i thought i would be the only person that it would apply to one person who was a guest on this show the composer tom snow oh tom snow my beloved tom snow yeah he was a great guest just wonderful oh, oh he's adorable he's a and what a genius what a great songwriter well, I was listening to a Barry Manilow album. In fact, the album called Barry Manilow. <laughs> and I was listening to the song, Anyone Can Do the Heartbreak. Yes. And I was, I, I thought, I wonder who wrote this? And I looked on there, and I saw that you wrote that with Tom Snow. I did. Tom and I wrote several songs together. Some really good ones, I have to say. What do you think of Barry Manilow's treatment of that song? I love Barry Manilow. I think he is 
you know, it may be passe for me to say this. I certainly hope not. I think he is inc- he's another multi-talented, totally charming, really great composer, lovely singer. And I thought he did a great job. He chose it. You know, I had thought it was going to be somebody with a Bob Seger kind of voice. That's who I was aiming, what we were aiming for was this really kind of hard-edged rock and roll, of, you know, 80s rock and roll thing. But Barry chose to do it, and I thought he did it beautifully. God bless him. Going back to your album, Voices. Yes. There's lots of songs on here, most of them written or co-written by you, but there's a few that were written by other songwriters. Yes. If you had to pick just one song from the album to represent the album, which song would you choose? Are you talking the one that I think is most indicative of the of what the, of the style or the one that I think will get the most airplay. How about both? Airplay would be the duet of the rose, absolutely. And I think that as far as indicative of the style um well, the, the very first cut, which I did not write, a wonderful woman from New York named Julie Gold wrote it called Southbound Train. That's pretty indicative of the, of the CD. She was also a guest on this show. <laughs> you have great taste in guests, my friend. Indeed, I do. <laughs> Thanks. The album closes with this song, Twelfth of Never. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that song and why you decided, or why the producer, whoever decided, that that would be how the end, the album would close. I've always loved that song. It was my favorite slow dance tune when I was in high school. I think it is the ultimate love song. It's short, it's sweet, it's pure. And I wanted to have at least one or two songs on the CD that would give people's ears a rest. It's what I also do when I'm in performance. I don't want you to have to listen to an hour and a half of songs you've never heard before. Every once in a while, you've got to let people's ears relax. You've got to let people, you know, settle down a little with something that they know. And I think it just puts this beautiful kind of pastel. It's the end of my particular, of this musical rainbow. I, I think it just talks about, my, the CD's pretty much about love, adult love, fulfilled love, unfulfilled love. And it, this sort of, I think, just puts this really pretty little golden button at the end. When somebody is listening to your music, whether it's a recording, what do you want someone to get from that experience? What I hope that people will get from it as, is that they will be touched. Either they'll be happy, they'll be set, whatever. I believe, and this is going to sound so woo-woo, what can I tell you? I live in California. That music is the great healer. It's the great communicator. In troubled times, music is the thing that can keep people sane. And because you can communicate, whether you even speak in the same language, two different people from two different parts of the world can listen to a piece of music and it can unite them for three minutes. And what I hope for my music and from this CD specifically is that it makes people feel, sit down and listen, and, and makes brings them comfort. For a songwriter, a compliment could be something as simple as someone recording or performing your song, of mm-hmm. course. And then there's compliments people where an artist says something to you. What has been the biggest compliment that you've received? 
Oh, Lord. <laughs> That's... <sighs> okay. I'll tell you the greatest compliment I received. When the rose had first been out for maybe a year or so, and so all, all of a sudden I was doing, I started doing concert work. I was in a funny little club, nightclub in Los Angeles called The Gardenia, and I had finished my show, and this rather fragile young man walked up to me who had been sitting in the back of the, of the club, and he reached into his back pocket and pulled out this really raggedy wallet. He opened his wallet, and he pulled out this really tattered piece of paper, and he said, this helped me get out of a mental institution, and he unfolded the piece of paper, and it was the lyric to The Rose. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What did you say to him? I cried. Yeah. I burst into tears. I threw my arms around him. I said, thank you very much. Bless your heart. You have just justified my existence on the planet. On the other side of the coin, when it comes to being an artist, there's a side that people see, the glamorous mm -hmm. side that a lot of times people say, oh, that's what it means to be a singer or a recording artist. What is it that people are not seeing mm. about being an artist? About being an artist? I would say the hard grunt work involved. And you know, part of that is the creation of music. But even more than that is the battle that you go through every day to be heard by more than your relatives. You know, how do you get your songs out into the world? How do you share your music with people? That is a constant battle. And as the music, you know, as downloading and streaming and, you know, changes, um, how, do you, how do you cope in a rapidly changing musical world? That's the hard part. What's the biggest change that you've seen? I mean, just... In addition to what you're talking about, the way that people receive music. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things. People, music now is wallpaper for the most part. It is 24-7 in people's ears, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it's just a fact. Whereas it, if you stop and think that before the radio like 1910, 1920, if you didn't have somebody in your family who played the violin or the piano, you didn't hear music unless you went, you know, out to a, you know, band shell in the park. But, you know, music was spatic and special and it's become more and more just a part of the entire, it's wallpaper for the most part, aside from the ones that really grab your heart and make you dance, especially if you're over 20. You know, when you think about how music resonated with us when we were kids and how you'd play the same song over and over and over again and obsess with it when you were in junior high school and high school and then even into college. And then it just starts to become less special and just more a background to your life. And that's changed. And also just with downloads and streaming and the fact that now even CDs are going out of and cars don't even new cars don't even have cd players in them anymore makes me crazy makes me crazy and the sound has changed because everything is you know streamed so everything is compressed 
when I when I first started singing, I I made these audiophile albums that the sound is astounding. It's like you're sitting in the middle of Carnegie Hall, and now everything sounds even when it's brilliantly digitally mastered. It it's compressed. It's harder. It's harsher. And people are used to that sound. And I've been reading where young people who do all of their listening on their iPhone, when you put them, if you play them an audiophile CD, they get very uncomfortable because the sound is not what they're used to. It's not, you know, it's too deep. It's too rich. It's too, there's too much going on. Hmm. And then of course, there's the thing about if you're a songwriter, how in the world do you get paid in, in the world of the digital download? where you can have, uh, you know, two million hits and make $35. Literally, I am not exaggerating. How do we deal with Pandora and Spotify and, you know, all of the streaming? It, it, it's a fact of life. And we, it's a total, especially for, for songwriters and musicians, it's a really hard road to hoe. It's really hard to make a living right now. But is it almost something you don't have a choice about? I mean, if you're going to be an artist... For example, I remember Willie Nelson, he was saying something one time. He's, he's, he was asked, what kind of advice would you give songwriters? And he said, there's nothing I can say to you. <laughs> if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. Yeah, yep. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it. And like I said, the struggle is how do you get it out there? And one of the interesting things about this particular period of time is you got if you can post it do it in your bedroom and post it on you know with GarageBand on your computer post it on YouTube you can get it out there it's not as if you are reliant on uh, Sony or uh, BMI or any you know BMG or any of the big recording labels you can get it out there whether or not it'll get more airplay than just your parents and your next door neighbor that's another thing and whether you'll ever make a living at it that's another thing you have to give everything you have to give so much away now before you can, if making a living is what you want to do, before you make a dime. The bio on your website, you attribute your success to divine intervention and a lot of caffeine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> There's a, a songwriter in Nashville that I was interviewing, and I asked him, I said, how do you write a song? And he said, well, first you begin brewing the coffee. <laughs> who was that <laughs> peter mayer peter mayer sure yeah he's right first you first you brew the, brew the coffee then you put the dog out then you get to yes so do you have a ritual when it comes to writing songs no it comes to me when it comes to me and wherever i'm doing i just i have to leave the room i go sit down i have a either out in the garden or i go sit down in this little corner in my kitchen with a pencil and a pad and try to and push the cat food to the other side of the table and scribble as fast as I can. And then I'll take it into my piano. But I'm not, I am not a disciplined, I'm going to write a song every week kind of person. It's when something desperately needs to be, you know, come, enters through my brain pan and says, I need to be told. Then I'll sit down and say, okay, let's see what we can do. What is the best thing about being Amanda McBroom? Oh, you, you ask such easy questions. The best thing about being me is being married to the most wonderful man in the world. I'm married to uh, a, a brilliant singer, a guy named George Ball, who was, the, who was the first person I ever heard sing Jacques Brel, who's the man who taught me how to sing on stage, who believes, has believed in me from the get-go, has been the most supportive person of my songwriting, I would say that is one of the best things about being me. 
when you're married to someone who is also an artist, is that easier or harder? Well, when we were both being actors, actors and singers together, you know what? Easy. We're not in competition for the same role. You know, if he was if he was my age and a woman, that might have been a little bit more of a challenge. But we made a pact long ago to be each other's best fan as well as best friend. So the nice thing about being two performers is we understand when the other person is out till 11 o'clock in a play and then has to go out and have a drink with friends before he comes home. That works terrifically. And now that I'm a songwriter and he is not, I write songs for him to sing. So we're not in any kind of competition and we just, we both just believe the other person is the best in the business. It's a, it's a wonderful, you know, experience. Given that communication has changed so much, we know that someone could hear this interview and be from anywhere in the world. Yeah. So for anyone who's out there, wherever they may be, what would you say to them? I'm thinking this. I would, what would I say? I would say, I wish you peace in your world and joy in your heart. And may you find love and comfort and may music be a huge part of your life. Anyone out there, if they want more information, they can visit the website. It's amcbroom.com, just A and then the last name McBroom. How do you define Amanda McBroom? Define me? Oh, well, I am more than what I do. I would say, oh boy. That, that's hard. I've never thought of defining myself. I mean, what I do is I sing. What I do is I write. What I do is I garden. Who I am is a ridiculously happy person. I think I don't grasp the seriousness of many situations. I am an optimist. I'm an optimist who, uh, who uh, believes in great language and a good cup of coffee. <laughs> I can get behind that. well thank you so much for sharing with us i am delighted to talk to you you've made me really think about some things here (laughs) you had had two cups of coffee and i've as i've been listening to you as we've been talking i've been going through this one my my first cup of the day (laughs) well then i think we both have to go pour another don't you (laughs) indeed I, i hope we get to share a coffee someday I'd love that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations on the album. Thank you. I'm very proud of it. You should be. Well, have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.